Global poverty is at the root of so many things. So many things, from hunger to the orphan crisis to human trafficking to drug trafficking to homelessness to disease and HIV AIDS, global poverty is at the root. Reducing or even eliminating global poverty is the key to reducing and eliminating so much hurt and pain in the world. But this issue is so complicated, as most issues are, but it is one that is incredibly important. My guest today left a life of comfort and and security working in the area of technology startups to pursue a deeper calling. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of Still Being Molly, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, a CEO, nonprofit director, community leader, or just an amazing person who is trying to make a positive impact not only through their personal life, but also with their professional career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact right where you are. My guest this week is Ann Mae Chang, the executive director of Lean Impact at the Lean Startup Company and author of the book Lean Startup that will be released soon. Previously, she was the chief innovation officer at USAID and Mercy Corps and served the U.S. Department of State as senior advisor for women in technology in the Office of Global Women's Issues. Prior to her pivot to the public sector, Anne May had more than 20 years experience as a technology executive at leading companies such as, you know, Google and Apple. Heard of them? This was such an incredible and interesting conversation, and I learned so much from it. But before we dive in, I actually want to introduce you to a new podcast sponsor. And while they're new to sponsoring the show, they are actually not new to my life or even to this podcast, and that is Cultivate What Matters. Now, with an ever-growing list of to-dos, it is so easy to feel overwhelmed and dispassionate by the tasks on your plate and disappointed that you're not spending enough time doing the things that you love and caring for the people you love. The ladies at Cultivate What Matters want to press the reset button. They believe your time can be spent intentionally and that your to-do lists can be simplified by uncovering meaningful goals and taking action on them little by little. In doing this, we learn to celebrate progress, not perfection. Cultivate What Matters was created to give you the community, resources, and encouragement to realize you can make great things, big or small, happen. You can find out more at stillbeingmolly.com slash cultivate, or you can go back to episode 37 of the podcast to hear my interview with my sweet friend, Lara Casey, who is the founder of Cultivate What Matters. Okay, so now without further ado, on to my conversation with Anne May. Hey, Anne May. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I, you know, when I first learned about you and I was, you know, I, every time, sometimes, you know, when I get a a guest come across my email or a potential guest or somebody that I want to interview, I, you know, obviously I try to do my homework. And as I was learning more about you, I was like, she might be the smartest person I'm ever going to speak with. So... Um, so I am just, I'm really looking forward to just to hearing your story and hearing more about your experience and uh, just really, I, I think you're going to have so much wisdom to, uh, or I, I have so much wisdom that I would like to glean from you. <laughs> well, I'm really excited about the discussion and, and excited about your podcast. Yes. So I'm going to have you just, we're going to dive right in. And that is to give us the Anne May 101. So tell us your story, how you got to where you are today, and what it is that you do. So, you know, I grew up in New Jersey in the suburbs um, of immigrant um, parents. My my mom came from mainland China. My dad came from Taiwan um, and, you know, kind of grew up in the same house uh, my whole childhood and then went off to college in California and basically stayed. And 
you know, from early on, I, you know, was fascinated by computers when they first came out when I was 12 years old. I taught myself how to program. You know, when I went to college, I studied computer science. And my career for the first 23 years um, after college was really in Silicon Valley in the tech industry. Yeah. And, um, you know, worked at a bunch of both big and small companies, you know, had a lot of fun, you know, found it really challenging and exciting work. And at the same time, I always felt like this yearning to do something more meaningful. And, and I, you know, try to donate money and volunteer on the side, but, you know, work was pretty consuming. And so it was limited what I could do. And, and pretty early on, like in my early 20s, I was inspired by the idea, actually inspired by a person who did this, uh, to spend the first half of my career in Silicon Valley and the second half of my career in the public or social sector, trying mm-hmm. to find some way to do some good in the world. Um, and so, you know, in my early 40s, I decided to make that shift. And uh, I was at Google at the time. I'd been at Google for eight years as a senior engineering director, had done things like led our uh, mobile engineering team and you know built built our mobile products into like a billion dollar business wow but you know like I said I wanted to do something more meaningful and uh, you know try to help people who didn't have the privileges that I had growing up mm-hmm. and so I decided to take a leave of absence from Google and ended up going to the State Department through this fellowship program. And I, I, I call it kind of my custom masters in public policy that, <laughs> that you know, rather than going back to school, you know, I, I'm someone that learns much more from doing than by sitting in a classroom. Yeah. So um, I went to the State Department and learned from some of the best people and, and got to know, you know, all, you know, State Department has huge reach both, you know, geographically and across different types of organizations. And so I felt like I got a great big picture view of, you know, things that were going on around the world. I decided that I wanted to focus on global poverty um, as, as kind of where I would try to make a difference because it seemed like it was at the root of so many of the things I cared about. Yeah. Um, so it started at the State Department, then after sort of being at that 10,000 foot level and getting the big lay of the land, went to a, a nonprofit called Mercy Corps, that is a global yeah. development nonprofit and humanitarian aid organization. I was the chief innovation officer there and then um, got this you know, opportunity for what I think of as my dream job uh, at USAID, which is um, the US government's foreign aid agency, to join to lead something called the Global Development Lab. That was a new bureau that had just been set up that was looking at how do we really bring science, technology, and innovation to transform the way that we do global development and dra- dramatically accelerate our progress. Um, and so that was hugely exciting. It felt like it was bringing my two worlds together of, you know, kind of my experience in the tech world and innovation world from Silicon Valley with my interest in global development. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I just had a blast there and happy to share more about that experience. Yeah. Um, but then, um, I was, uh, as a political appointee, I got kicked out, uh, last January with the change of administration and decided that, you know, based on all the things that I had learned and seen and was so inspired by that I wanted to share that with the rest of the world and decided to go and write a book, which was something I had never aspired to before, but I couldn't think of a better way to get the message out. And so it's really based on, you know, the things that I learned in my own journey um, and in my time at USAID, but then also through, uh, got a chance to interview over 200 different organizations and learn from them and and sort of, you know, runs the gamut geographically, the types of organizations and so forth, and really learn from them about how they are achieving impact in the world. Yeah. 
man, there is just so I love, love, love talking with people like you who sort of have this almost unconventional path to what you're doing <laughs> currently, because it's so it, it's a very common thread along, you know, along the way for a lot of social entrepreneurs, because you know, so often there's this pull, you know, the social entrepreneurs kind of follow the traditional path, you know, maybe they go to college and they become a teacher or whatever, you know, or they become a doctor or whatever it is. But there's always sort of that pull underneath to do something uh-huh. more and to do something like you said, to do something more meaningful. And so I love just sort of the, the passion that you have for technology. And then that pull that you had, uh, you know, and that passion for ending global poverty, and how can you mesh the two things? Um, um, I want to go back a little bit because one of the things that you said was that you you wanted to focus on global poverty because it was at the root of so many things you care about. Now, this is something, obviously, I am also extremely invested in and I talk a lot about, but I think not a lot of people necessarily understand what that means. So I want to dive a little deeper into that. So when you say that global poverty is at the root of so many things you care about, can you expand on that a little bit and what exactly you mean? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, when I look at some, you know, the the big ills in the world, if you will, you know, I think so much of it comes from people who are in poverty and just don't have better options and are really struggling, right? Whether it is, you know, people cutting down the rainforest and damaging the environment because they don't have better options or people becoming terrorists um, or just people suffering because they don't have the opportunities um, that, that, that I grew up with. You know, I forget who it is that has, that, that says, you know, that talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. Mm. Um, I really believe that that's the case. And I think that there's so much unnecessary suffering in the world. And the result of that is it causes a lot of ills in the world that propagate um, and, uh, and affect everyone. Absolutely. You know, one of the issues that my listeners and my, my blog readers know is it's the issue that keeps me up at night, literally. There are nights where I, I literally can't sleep because I'm, I'm so consumed by it. And that's ending human trafficking. And human trafficking, you know, when we really look at it, is so, you know, affected by global poverty because a lot of times what happens is, especially in the developing world, it can look a little different when we, we talk about domestic human trafficking. But especially in the developing world, you know, we talk a lot of times in, in other countries like in Kenya and Uganda, you hear this term survival prostitution when mm-hmm. it's really human trafficking. <laughs> but yeah. they don't they don't think of it like that because they just think, oh, well, that woman, she can't afford to feed her family. So she's going out and she's prostituting herself when really, you know, maybe she does it one time because she hears from somebody else that that's what they're doing in order to feed their children. But then they get involved in basically a, a, a trafficking ring and then somebody else is holding um, power over them and it just becomes this this cycle. And so, you know, it, you're you're so right when you talk about if we really want to end a lot of the issues in this world, damaging the rainforest and terrorism and um, human trafficking, all those things at, at the root of it is global poverty. Um, and I watched one of your uh, for the listeners, uh, you were you did a TEDx talk um, last I guess it was last January of 2017. Is that correct? I think I did it in October the year before, but then it got released in January. Yes, yes. So um you know, one of the things that you had mentioned that was really interesting is the change in poverty over the years and mm-hmm. how poverty looks very different now than it did, you know, in, say, the, the 70s and 80s, where, you know, there was this visual of, 
you know, uh, in famine in Ethiopia. And, you know, you kind of like I remember as a kid in the 80s, you know, seeing the commercials with the kids with the flies on them. And that's just like what everybody thought poverty was. <laughs> and that's not actually what it looks like as much today. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about just kind of the, the shift in global poverty and kind of how that looks different today? Yeah, absolutely. So the good news is that we've made dramatic progress again around global poverty in the last yeah. 20, 30 years that we've around the world. We've cut the number of people in extreme poverty in roughly in half. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the bad news is that where global poverty remains is getting more and more entrenched. Right. So if you look at the cutting global poverty in half as a headline, a huge part of that, I think like three quarters of that was actually in China. Wow. Um, and so, so, you know, and, and China was a very state driven process and we're just not likely to see that repeat itself in mm. the next 20 or 30 years. And so where poverty remains today is much more in fragile states, states that don't have well-functioning governments. Um, and poverty used to be very much a rural phenomenon. And there's been a massive urban migration that continues to this day, where it's becoming more and more urban. And so the shape of what poverty looks like, um, it still absolutely exists. And it's still a huge, huge challenge. And we've made progress. But the remaining pieces of it that we need to tackle are, I think, going to be much tougher than than what we did in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. I remember uh, I love looking at different types of maps that have um, that show different demographics, like, you know, like color coded maps that say like, oh, this type of people live here and these type of people live here. And um, these are the interests of the people that live here. I'm always just fascinated by those things. And uh-huh. my husband found this map the other day that was it was a map of the United States. I mean, and um, and then there was an all, a, a similar one that was the map of the the globe, and it had like all of the the states in red versus the areas in white, and it was like majority of the United States was in red, and then like California, New York, you know Virginia, there were areas like that that were in white, and it was basically like the equal the amount same amount of people live in these tiny little white areas as they do in all of the red. Yeah. So and it was just like the way that the population has shifted away from rural areas to to cities. And then it compared that with the world as well. And how, you know, you have India and China and, the and you know, North America that take up the majority of the population of the of the world. And then all these other areas spread out that are more rural that just don't have as many people and just the way that poverty is also balanced out. So it's just interesting that you said that a lot of the poverty has shifted from rural to urban, which is just that that kind of stuff is fascinating to me. Yeah, and that's both a challenge and an opportunity yeah. because um, you know, certainly there's a lot of urban challenges that we're facing in terms of, you know, violence and so forth. Yeah. And when people come together in more concentrated areas, there's also more opportunity to provide education and healthcare. It's you know that there's it's easier to to provide services to people when they're more concentrated, and yeah. and there's easier to offer opportunity to people. So there's definitely a, a, an upside and a downside there to the the challenges we're going to face going forward. 
I know you are loving this conversation with Anne May, and I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsor of the show who is able to help make it possible, and that is Cultivate What Matters. This is something I talk about all the time, and that is pursuing our God-given gifts, dreams, and goals. You want to be the person you were made to be. You know that in your heart, but your time, your heart, and your energy have been sucked dry by guilt, distractions, and not knowing where to go next. Now, the power sheets. That's where to go next. Now, I have personally been a PowerSheets user for over three years, and they have completely transformed how I set goals and grow both personally and professionally. The one-year intentional goal planner from Cultivate What Matters is ready to help you uncover intentional goals and live them out. Now, they are perfect for anyone, love-at-home moms, students, CEOs, entrepreneurs, any of you listening, you can use the power sheets. Anyone in a season of life who needs a grace-filled system that works. Thousands of women all over the world have made their goals happen with the power sheets. That is your day planner's best friend. So again, I have been using them for three years and they have just transformed the way that I set and cultivate goals in my life. So if you are ready to live on purpose, if you finally want to be the woman that you were created to be, free of pressure and the need to be perfect, head on over to stillbeingmolly.com slash cultivate now to order your power sheets and explore the entire 2019 collection. Now back to my conversation with Anne May. Another one of the things that you said in, um, in that TED talk that I wanted to ask, I was like, I need to ask her about this because um, you mentioned about the use of mobile phones among those living in poverty. And I remember my first trip to Kenya in 2011. I will, ne- I will never forget this. I was in one of the most rural areas in Kenya. I mean, in the mountains, like in the mm-hmm. Aberde- base of the Aberdare Mountains, you have to take, you know, hours of dirt roads to get to this these places. There's, you know, no running water. There's no electricity, anything like that. And we we're in this village and all of a sudden I'm seeing like women and men pulling out cell phones. And I just mm-hmm. remember being like, wait, what? And And then the next day, we were we met a Maasai tribe and you know for those that are not familiar with the Maasai you know they're the, they look very traditionally Kenyan so to speak they wear the beads and they've got the beautiful beautiful garments and the piercings and things like that they're just beautiful beautiful people um, but they're you know they're they're cattle herders essentially and so they they're they travel all around and they kind of move along with their cattle and they they drink cow's blood and they're very, you know you're, they're kind of what you think of like the most rural type people and they had cell phones and I just remember being so like very confused by this because it was not it it really shattered a lot of one of the images I had had and what I'd expected um and I was I remember asking some of my friends there in Kenya just saying you know what is this like and they said well just you know it's very cheap to get a cell phone here and so a lot of times people use them and then about once a week they'll go to the internet cafes in the bigger towns and they charge them up and then they go back out to do what they're doing and I just remember it was so interesting to me that in a lot of these areas people were were choosing to to pay for cell phones over you know, but they didn't necessarily have money to to meet basic needs with like food and education. Yeah. And so that was just very interesting to me. And so when you may when you mentioned that, that a lot of people living in global poverty, you know, have mobile phones and access to technology and things like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe if what what you've learned as as to why that is the case? Yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting to me is looking at the the 
the trajectory of the adoption of mobile phones in, like you said, some of the poorest, more most rural areas compared to some of the other like basic human services and uh, that 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 we think are necessary, and you know, mobile phones have absolutely proliferated around the world, and you know, it raises a question for me: why why that and not you know clean water, sanitation, electricity, and so forth, and you know. I think that a big piece of the, the there, there's two things I think are a little bit different here. So one is mobile phones are things that people really want. Yeah. Um, you know, they will prioritize them. Like you said, I feel like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs almost needs to be rewritten where mobile <laughs> phones is at the core. Yeah. Because people are making the choice to top up their mobile phone before they buy food or get water or anything like that mm-hmm. because it allows them to stay connected with loved ones. It allows them to look for job opportunities. Um, you know, it's, it's a tool that gives them access to everything else. And so mobile phones found a way to really add value that people found important to their lives is one side. And then the other side is that there was a business model behind it that, you know, both the people who build the phones were able to make money by selling the phones. The telecom companies that provide airtime and minutes and so forth are able to make money off that. And so they're able to then invest in expanding their infrastructure and in getting the, the, you know, these services out to more and more people. And so, you know, I think it's instructive for us because for a long time we've said, you know, these problems are really tough because we're trying to reach people in far off rural areas who don't have very much money. So it's going to be slow and painstaking progress. And I think mobile phones have shown that it doesn't have to be. Yeah. And, and you know, I think we should challenge ourselves to say not like everything's going to look like the adoption of mobile phones, but what can we learn from that to inform what we're doing so that we are providing in, in you know goods and services that people really demand and see value in and that there is some sort of engine for growth that's going to allow it to propagate to everyone who could really benefit. Yeah, that's a really good point and honestly something I had never even considered or thought about and I love that perspective of how do we create other essential services and almost market them like we did mobile phones and how do you create a similar demand. And it sounds strange when you're thinking like, how do we create a similar demand for clean water and sanitation and electricity that will make people want those things as much as they want a mobile phone? It is a little strange when you really think about it. But I I think that's a really interesting perspective. And I, you know, that I just I hadn't considered. So I appreciate you sharing that. Well, and this is one of the things that I think makes innovating for social good so much harder than innovating for business. Because if you're running a business, like you're selling mobile phones or you're selling whatever your good or service is, you have a great feedback loop where you're trying to sell to a customer and they're going to buy it or they're not going to buy it. And so if no one buys your product, you know really quickly that you're not hitting the mark and you're going to change your product in some way or, or try a different product. Now, when you're looking at Um, social good and you're trying to provide something like maybe you're trying to provide clean water or sanitation and toilets to to people and you're not and they're not the ones paying for it you don't have that same feedback loop right that that you may be giving people something that you think they should have or some donor thinks they should have 
but they may not actually value it. And because you don't have that feedback loop, you're just giving away stuff for free potentially. Yeah. Um, it, it takes much longer to figure out if you don't make a conscious effort to do so. It takes much longer to figure out if you're just off the mark and they're not, you know, whatever you're giving them is just, you know, going on the side and they're not using it because they don't see the value in it. Yeah. Um, and so part of, you know, what I think is really important when we're looking at innovating for good is to cr- find ways to create that feedback loop, to really think of our quote unquote beneficiaries as our customers and really see whether what we're giving them, they, they value and they use and they really benefit from. Yeah, that is, again, just an incredibly unique perspective <laughs> and just something that I yeah, I, I never would have thought about it like that. Now, I will say that having done a lot of, um, you know, work and, and mission type work and, and work in the developing world, I have learned, um, you know, especially and especially now having interviewed so many different types of uh, ethical entrepreneurs and things like that, people that are working with group, artisan groups and um, different people groups in, in other countries, you know, we talk a lot about sort of this like, American savior mentality and the Americans will go in there and they're like we have all of the ideas and we're going to tell you what you need to do and how we need to actually we need to flip that because that's yeah. that's not constructive and in many cases it's just more damaging um, and one of the things that we've really that I've personally really learned over the years is is to go in and really it's about having conversations and saying, what is it that you need? What is it that are the problems that you are facing? You're dealing with this on day in and day out. You see what's happening in your communities. What resources can we support you? You know, what are you already doing, but maybe you just don't have all of the resources that you need. So how can we support you in that way? And that's much more effective rather than going in and saying like, hey, we're going to take this system or this product or this whatever that works in America and we're just going to take it to rural Sierra Leone and assume that it's going to work there too when that's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's so important for us to, and we, we, you know, talk about in the lean startup world of get out of the building, like mm-hmm. actually talk to your customers, understand what they, what their challenges are, what their needs are, what their desires are so that you can really tailor something to meet their needs. But even more better, I think is engage them in coming up with the solutions. A lot of times we find that people who are, you know, th- living in, in very desperate conditions are coming up with amazing innovations that can improve their own lives and, and they don't necessarily have the resources or wherewithal to get, you know, kind of build that up. And, and we can, we can do a lot to lift them up and support them because, you know, there's an incredible ingenuity and they really understand the ins and outs of the context that they're living in to understand what's going to work. Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to what you were saying earlier too, about how talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And so how can we go and find the, the talented people in those areas and then just give them the opportunity that they might not have access to. Absolutely. So I want to shift just a little bit um, and talk a little bit about this book, Lean Impact. Mm -hmm. And um, what was, you know, like you said, after you were, as you said, kicked out in January 2017, um, you you set out to write a book. And um, I have a lot of friends who have written books in the last couple of years. And they always talk about, it's almost like birthing a a different type of child (laughs) that you just didn't even realize was going to be this much work. Um, So when when you came up with the idea for the book, um, 
you know, where did you kind of start? And you, you interviewed over 200 organizations. So what are some of the things that you learned and what was your goal really with this with this book? Yeah, so if I look at the highest level goal for me in the book is that, uh, you know, having come from Silicon Valley and gone into this area of global development, but the social sector writ large, what I found is that the pace of change has accelerated so dramatically in Silicon Valley in terms of all the technologies you and I use every day um, are so different and so much more advanced than what we had 10 or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's affecting everything around the world. Ch- you know, Change is happening faster and faster. And when I went into government, into the social sector, I found a number of things in the system of how how we went about social change that just were not agile or nimble enough to be able to move at that same pace. And so I, I came up, you know, I started having a big concern that we were, we were just not keeping up and, uh, you know, and, and that people look to Silicon Valley a lot for all the flashy technologies, right? Cause that's a very tangible thing you can hold on to. Yeah. But what I think is even more valuable that we can learn from Silicon Valley is how that kind of, uh, innovation has really arisen out of Silicon Valley. And and there's a book called The Lean Startup that I think really captured it well, this kind of notion of, you know, rapid iteration, you know, this sort of build, measure, learn feedback loop of how do we run experiments, learn as quickly as possible and iterate as quickly as possible. It, it, that innovation is not about the the big idea so much as it is about how quickly can you iterate and improve on that idea to to really bring it to practical application in the world and that's really what innovation is about um, and there's a lot of things in the way the social sector works that make it very difficult to do this and so um, you know I really set it out as my mission for the second half of my life. To, to look at what I could do to contribute to helping shift the mindset of, you know, the, the whole ecosystem of players that makes the social sector work. Everything from nonprofits to social enterprises to triple bottom line companies to foundations and government agencies and impact investors who are all seeking the same thing, which is to do good in the world, mm-hmm. um, but not always uh, working in concert to create the right incentives and the the right investments that will help us get there. Yeah. I love that perspective, and I love how you ha- are taking the knowledge that you have gained in, like you said, both the technology, Silicon Valley-type sector and in the, the public sector um, to impact other businesses so that they can continue to um, positively impact the world. So what is on the horizon for you now that you've birthed this baby book and <laughs> and, uh, you know, what what is what are you hoping to do now? What's sort of the next step? Yeah, I mean, I think the next step for me is really to get the book out in the world and, you know, try to spread the word as broadly as possible and really would love to build a movement where, you know, whether people have read the book or not, we shift our mindset to about how we think about achieving social impact and think about it not just as focusing on something that is a good thing to do, but start being as rigorous about achieving impact as companies are rigorous about achieving profits, right? That, that, you know, I, I love that your, your podcast is called business with purpose, but I wonder like, how about if it, we shift that around and say, 
purpose with business, right? Mm-hmm. Like if we if we lead with purpose and we look at ways to optimize the impact that we can make and use business as as a engine that can help us really uh, scale that and and grow that and get it out to everybody who could benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, the book releases on October 30th, I believe. Is that correct? Yes. And so you can pre-order it now on Amazon um, and other 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 book purchasing purchasing places. I'm assuming. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I will make sure for the listeners, I will have all of that information in the show notes on how you can pre-order Anne May's book. Um, but Anne May, this is the time of the show that is my listeners' favorite time uh, because we get to know you just on a, a fun. We just get to ask you some fun questions to get to know you, um, and also my listeners. Know that this is the portion of the show where my executive producer husband inserts a sound effect of his choosing to uh, <laughs> to transition us, and every week it's something different, so it's always <laughs> it's always a surprise. So, uh, Anne May, are you ready? Yeah. The Maasai are living through harsh times, which intriguingly makes the mobile phone all the more valuable. Mobile phones are very important. Uh-huh. When we move our animals, uh-huh. we can communicate to a person. Move to a certain place because there is water and grass, I, I move there. When I go to town, I can also communicate with my ladies, my wife. Ah, You've got how, how, many, how, how many wives do you, do you have? Three. Three wives? <laughs> yeah. Lucky man. So this is a question I've always wanted to ask and I've never asked anyone before, so I thought this would be a fun one. Uh, what makes you say, what was I thinking when you look back on a portion of your life? <laughs> huh, that's a tough one. What was I thinking? Um, I think you might have stumped me there. <laughs> it's always one of those questions that I'm, I've, I've wanted to ask because I think we can all we all learn some of the best lessons from our mistakes <laughs> or um, the times in our life where we were kind of like, why, why was I doing that at that, t- <laughs> at that time? Um, at well, least I, that I has been for me. One example. Um, so before I joined Google, I was at a startup company and I was a VP of engineering there and we were building a product that was supposed to transform the way that we communicate and socialize online. Mm -hmm. And we spent, you know, a few years building this beautiful product um, and then launched it into the world. And, you know, it was, it was a very ambitious thing, I think ahead of its time. And when we launched it into the world, we, we ended up having some passionate users, but we also got a lot of things wrong. But because we had spent so much time trying to build this perfect, beautiful product, um, we quickly ran out of runway. We just didn't have enough time to improve it and refine it and, and make it really work for everyone. And I think it became a really formative experience for me of, you know, this whole idea of like, you know, iterating, experimenting, getting things out in the world more quickly because, you know, we spent, you know, millions of dollars building this product that, you know, maybe could have been really successful, um, but, but ended up not being because we just ran out of runway to, to get, get, get there. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I love that. Um, next question is if you had a time machine, what time period would you visit and why? Oh, wow. That's a great one. Um, I think I'm really curious about the future. Um, I, I, I would love to go into the future, not like too distant in the future, but, but just to, it would be fascinating to, to see how all the things I'm seeing around me today play out in just like 
you know, 20, 30 years or something like that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we all have our guesses about how some of these different trends are going to evolve. And I'm sure it's going to look nothing like we think. Yeah, absolutely. I always think about that, too, because, you know, I'm of the generation. I'm not a millennial, but I'm not. I, I guess they call it zennial. It's like the mm-hmm. right before millennials, because I remember the time before we had Internet and before we had computers and before we had cell phones. And then I also remember the time when all of those things came about. And so I, I think about in my own life when I remember, you know, standing at the TV, like manually turning the channel and little, with the rabbit ears, yes, trying to with, get the signal. <laughs> and you're putting the tinfoil on the rabbit yeah. ears to try and get the signal. Yeah. And so you're manually changing the channel and all of that and, you know, beta tapes and uh, eight tracks and all of that. So I remember that. But then I also, you know, I remember my first iPod and I remember what that was like to be able to have 80 songs on this on this little device I could hold in my hand. And now, you know, as the new iPhones are being released and it's just it's insane to me to think that how far we've come technology wise in just my lifetime. And so I love to think about, OK, well, what are the next 35 years going to look like? It's fascinating. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right. So the next question is, what is your strangest pet peeve? What is my strangest pet peeve? Oh, um, I don't know if this is a strange one, but it bugs me when people are late. <laughs> Because um, I feel like when 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 you show up late, you're you're saying that my time is more important than your time. Mm. Um, so so I always you know like to be prompt. I feel, I I get anxious of showing up late because I feel like it's disrespectful to someone else. And you know when I was at Google, I had a boss who was always on time. It was so unusual for executives, right? Because executives are notorious for running late. Yeah. And so we started every meeting on time, and you know it just made me so happy. <laughs> I love that. I think that's a really good one. Um, and then my last question, this is my favorite question to ask, is for what today are you most grateful for? You know, as I get older, I become more and more grateful for my health. Um, you know, I, I take it less and less for granted and just am grateful that I have my health and am able to pursue the things that I'm interested in the world. I love that. Uh, that is an awesome one to be grateful for. Absolutely. Uh, well, Anne May, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and for just sharing your wisdom and uh, for taking time out of your busy day to, to speak with me. Well, it's really been a pleasure and a lot of fun, too. Thank you so much for having me. I loved this chat with Anne May, and our conversation was encouraging, challenging, inspiring, and convicting in so many ways. I honestly learned so much from her. She is a genius, basically. But really, I learned so much from her, and I really had so many takeaways that I know I'm going to implement in my own life and in my business. I hope you enjoyed our chat as much as I did. And another huge thank you to this week's podcast sponsor, Cultivate What Matters. Visit stillbeingmolly.com slash cultivate to take the first step of getting your life back and cultivating what matters in 2019. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you're a first-time listener of the show, welcome. Be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring amazing entrepreneurs and business owners who are literally changing the world with their businesses. And if you are a regular listener of the show, thank you so much for tuning in week in and week out. And thank you for your support. Be sure to head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Radio Public, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure you are subscribed to the show. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the podcast. And would you do me a favor? If you like this show, would you share it with a friend today? Sharing the show with a friend really, really helps us to get this show out there and get more ears 
on the show and more amazing stories of entrepreneurs and business owners being shared. So you can use the hashtag business with purpose podcast, tag me at still being Molly on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or just let your friend know, send a, send a text and say, Hey, you should check out the show. Cause I really like it. I would really appreciate it. As always, this show is edited by my amazing husband and executive producer, John Stillman. And the music is by Mark Killian of third wheel media. Thank you so much for listening and go do something good with purpose on purpose. Yes.